This sermon, A Sobering But Gracious Guardrail, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, June 20th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of James? James 5, we, we enter into the last chapter of James. And so this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. So with your Bibles opened, please stand with me and let's read together. James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in, and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slave slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. you may be seated. What a Father's Day passage. <laughs> Let's pray. We need help. Oh, Lord, we do need help. As we heard last week, we are wholly insufficient, but you are wholly sufficient. And now we come to your word, desperate and dependent for the gift of illumination, desperate and dependent to understand and process and know how to apply your truth, especially this text that we are in this morning. And so we ask that you would do that. This is your word spoken to your people. And so we know, according to your promises, it will not return void. So work in us now, we pray. As we humble our hearts and eagerly await your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like every New Testament epistle, James is written to believers. But as we read, you probably noticed there's something different about this passage. You you can't read James 5, 1 through 6 without asking yourself this question. Who are the rich? Who is James talking about here? His strong language. Your your, your possessions will, will eat your flesh like fire. You murder the righteous person. What? Who is James talking about here? Who is he addressing? Of course, now, we know that, that there were some wealthy believers in James' audience because he addressed them in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. But are those rich? Are those rich? The rich he's addressing in our text this morning. Well, that's, that's debatable, if you read the smart guys, 
But I do believe that James is not writing to believers in these verses. I believe he's writing to unbelievers, to unbelievers who are primarily wealthy landowners. Now, you might ask, well, well, okay, but why, why would James directly address a group not in his audience, especially unbelievers, right? I mean, what's the point? Are they going to listen to James? Will this ever make it to their ears? They're, they're, not, they're, they're not part of the church. So what, what is James trying to accomplish here? Well, that's a really good question. And I, and I want to, don't turn here, but I want to go, I want to begin, I'm going to do what my homiletics professor said I should never do. I'm going to begin our text with another text. <laughs> So listen to the words of Psalm 73, because I think Psalm 73 is helpful for us in understanding this text. The psalmist writes, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And he says this. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then I discerned the end of the rich. If you have the ESV study Bible, The study notes explain this psalm in this way. This is a wisdom psalm, helping those who sing it to rest content, even when unbelievers seem to get along without a care in the world, so that the faithful are tempted to join them. Their help comes from taking to heart where the different life paths of the faithful and the unbelievers are headed. Each one is going toward either nearness to God or separation from him, a nearness or separation that will apply both now and in the afterlife. Like the psalmist, we can see those in this world around us, particularly those who are wealthy, those who seem to have it all together. We can see them in their prosperity and their happiness And like the psalmist, be tempted to join in with them. To be tempted to give ourselves to their philosophies, their values, their priorities. So we make our work worship. We make possessions a priority. We make money our measure. James understands this, 
And so he makes it brutally clear in, in James 5, 1 through 6, why we don't want to join the rich of the world by bringing an eternal perspective to this temporary life. That's what James is doing through this text. He is shedding light on the destiny of those who seem to be excelling in this world but do not know God. So you can't sit out this one. You can't say, well, I'm a believer, so I guess this isn't for me. It is. Though this text is not written to us, it is written for us. And there is a sober but gracious warning, guardrail, if you will, that James gives us here. So look at verse one. Notice how James begins again. He says, come now, or listen up. Listen up. You who have much wealth in this world. Then he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Those, the, the, the rich are to weep and howl. Those two terms are, they're, they're Old Testament prophetic terms that, 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 that uh, denote how one responds on the final day of judgment that will come according to Scripture. You could, you could literally uh, translate this, shout at the top of your lungs in grief and horror. Why? Why would James tell the rich in this world, the unbelieving rich, to shout at the top of their lungs in grief and horror? Well, he says in verse 1, because there is coming misery will come upon you one day. That day is the day of Judgment. Now, listen, before we go any further, it's important not to misinterpret James here. He is not condemning the rich because they're rich. And he is specifically targeting here the rich. But being rich is not their problem. There is nothing inherently sinful, we know this, right, about money and possessions. The sin is found in how we acquire wealth. The sin is found in how our heart relates to our possessions. The sin is found in in how we use it, isn't it? And so let's not misunderstand James. We We have to make sure that we understand money is not the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. And James is about to to pass on four indictments to to the wealthy of this world. And so we need to make sure we understand why James is summoning them to this wailing and weeping. So we're going to go through these four indictments fairly quick. But um, first of all, indictment number one, the rich of this world should should weep and howl because of their vain hoarding. Notice what he says in verse two. This is, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. The rich, James said, should weep and wail because instead of using their wealth, described here by James as in really three ways, described as riches, 
from grain, clothing, and then gold and silver. The rich have, instead of using their wealth to bless and serve others for the glory of God, they are hoarding it. Did you notice that? Garments, moths don't munch on garments unless they're hanging in a dank, dark closet. Gold and silver being used and passed on stays nice and shiny. The picture here is is this stockpiling of wealth. In their greed, they accumulate far beyond what they need, ignoring the needs of those around them. But, of course, their hoarding is all in vain. We see that here. In the big picture, the things they glory in, the things that they trust in, they won't last. They won't help them on that last day. In fact, not only will they not last, but the decay of their wealth is already underway. Did you notice James' language? He says, he didn't say your riches will rot. He says your riches have rotted. He says your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. In other words, they've already failed you. The trust that you put in them, the glory that you give them, the security that you find, they've already failed you. They're already rotted. Your garments are already eaten. And what James is doing here is he is viewing their wealth in the light of the Lord's return. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. They have laid up treasures for themselves in the last day. Instead of living mindful of the Lord's return, they're, they're, if you will, living on their own clock. No idea of God's clock. No sense of eternity. There there is nothing here. They, They live as if life won't end. They live as if their kingdom is the only kingdom. And it will never end. And they are accountable to no one. But this life does come to an end. We know that. They are accountable. And the very treasures they identify with, the very things that they trust in, won't save them on the day of the Lord. In fact, James goes out of his way to graphically graphically inform them that to the contrary, their treasures will actually act as evidence that condemns their souls to the misery of hell. Did you notice what he says in verse 3? Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Your love of money, your misappropriated hope and trust That which at least right now you may feel like it it makes me feel good, it makes me feel secure, but the very fact that you are trusting in the things of this world, not only is that evidence that there is an eternity of misery coming upon you, but those very things will condemn you. They will show forth on the day of the Lord as evidence that you have forsaken God and and decided to live for this world. And that is one bad investment. They will eat your flesh like fire. Indictment number two. 
The rich should the rich should weep and well because they defraud the poor. Notice verse four. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. This is James is writing into an agrarian culture, and in and in an agrarian culture such as this, field workers were critical. And their work was hard. Their work was dirty. Their work was unpleasant. There were no Kubota tractors or John Deere mowers. It was, it was work. Whatever, whatever these people earned, they earned. And whatever they earned, they, they desperately needed oftentimes, just to eat when they got home. James says, as he writes to these unbelieving, wealthy landowners, you amass your wealth by withholding their hard-earned wages. You take advantage of the poor. You are dishonest in your dealings with them. Instead of being generous, you defraud them. Families go unfed so your kingdom can expand. It's evil. It's an evil injustice. James says you should weep and well because, because there is someone who sees it all. Notice what he says in 4B. He says, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These rich that use their power to muscle and oppress others. But James says, oh, their cries are being heard. And he says they're being heard by the Lord of hosts. You could translate that, the Lord Almighty. The one who commands with all might and infinite power the Lord who leads an army in defense of his people. You who are rich should weep and well because the Lord Almighty hears the cries of his people and he will go to war against you for his people on the day of the Lord. Oh, things might be going great. Your kingdom might be expanding. Your stock might be rising. Your bank account might be inflating. Good, good for you, but there's coming a day. Those that you have defrauded, the poor that you have oppressed, they cry out to their Lord Almighty and he hears their cries. He, he hears their cries, he knows, he knows. And he will deal with it on the day of judgment. Indictment number three, pursuing self-indulgence. The rich, the unbelieving rich of this world they should weep and howl for the misery that will come upon them 
because they pursue self-indulgent. Again, verse 5, look what it says. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day, in a day of slaughter. The, the, these wealthy landowners, they're, de, they're defrauding poor field workers who can barely eat so that they can live in the lap of luxury, so that they can have the, the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, so that they can indulge themselves without restraint on the backs of the poor. And the imagery here, I love the imagery. It, it's comical, but it's serious. It's comical, but it's sobering. It couldn't be more effective. James says, like a cow in the field, grazing without a care, grazing all day long, all the hay, all the straw, all the grass that you could want, indulging itself, filling its belly, completely oblivious to the slaughterhouse, completely oblivious to the fact that as even as it is fattening itself, it's being fattened for a day of slaughter. James says, you have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. That's, that's James' perspective on the unbelieving rich in this world, is that they see, they, they live seeing only this life, completely oblivious to a holy God, completely oblivious to a God who created all things and sustains all things and owns all things, Therefore, all things are accountable to him, including those who feel so autonomous and so in control and have so much ability, they live completely oblivious to the fact that there is a day coming. We don't know when. We are in the last days. And there is a day coming. There is a day coming when they will give account, when they will stand before a holy God. And all they will have is their treasures, their riches, their resume. And God will consume them in eternal eternal punishment. The essence of hell, listen, the essence of heaven is that heaven is the place where God is present to bless infinitely. And hell is just the opposite. Hell is that place where God is present, his presence to punish 
infinitely and relentlessly. That day, James says, is coming. And, and as you feast on the things of this world, you are like a cow simply fattening yourself for the day of judgment. Indictment number four. James actually says you condemn and murder. <laughs> Verse six. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Notice a trajectory here. We went from personally hoarding. Now, James says, murder? Murder? What does he mean by that? Well, James doesn't give us details. We can only speculate what he means by murder. But I do think that Douglas Moo gets it right when he says James is referring to the practical outcome of the actions the rich take against the poor. Let me give you a couple examples. To defraud the poor of their pay so that they can't eat. They're given over to poverty and sickness and starvation that leads to death. Or maybe to defraud them of their pay to condemn, is to condemn them, in a sense, to prison for their unpaid debts. You, know, you used to go to jail for that. Now you just get a nick on your credit report. where they would probably rot to their death. Whatever James' intent here, it's a serious, serious indictment. You murder the righteous person. The righteous person here, by the way, is a Christian. As we said from the outset, most of the people that James and James's audience, these were poor people. They, they have been driven away from their home. They, they, they have been dispersed because of persecution. They're starting all over again. They've left the family land behind. Oh, there were some wealthy people in the church. We know that because James addressed them in chapter one. But for the most part, these believers were, didn't have a lot. They were starting all over So James, James has the Christian in mind here when he says the righteous person. And here's the truth. The righteous person didn't stand a chance against a wealthy landowner, against a powerful rich. When James says at the end of verse six, he says, he does not resist you. It's not because they were pacifists. It's because from the purse to the courts, the poor Christian didn't stand a chance against the rich landowner. It was the ultimate bullying that at times cost them their lives. But God hears their cries. And he will James reminds, 
he will bring eternal justice that will satisfy his holiness and vindicate his people. So listen, when James says in verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, that makes sense now, doesn't it? He's explained why with four serious indictments upon the unbelieving rich. So, so how is James' scathing, graphic, brutal rebuke to wealthy unbelievers, how, how is it meant to serve us? I said before, James is talking to a group outside of the church, but he's talking to them for us. So what is he trying to accomplish? So I believe there are two things. I'm sure there's more, but I think two primary things. To comfort the believer, to guard the believer. I, I got that from John Calvin as he wrote in his commentary on this text James has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. That sounds like Psalm 73, doesn't it? And also, reason number two, knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, that they might, with a calm and resigned mind, bear them. So two things, two things here. What, what, what is this here? Why is this here ultimately for us? Well, first, to comfort us, to comfort the believer, and in particular, to comfort us with a sense of God's eternal justice. Listen, one can only imagine, right, how tempted these poor and oppressed believers were to take justice into their own hands. I mean, could you imagine the father, it's Father's Day, the father who has busted his hump all day, who, who has been respectful to his boss, who, who has worked hard and not slacked. He, he has a theology that flows from the gospel that says, even the way you work and relate to your boss, let it bring glory to God. And he gets to the end of that day knowing that, that, that he has hungry children at home. And the boss says, not today. Go home. Right? What man wouldn't be tempted to say, no, I'm not going home. You and I are going down right now. <laughs> Imagine how tempted... These poor and oppressed believers were to take justice into their hands. And so what comfort for them when they hear those words in James 4, when whoever was reading this letter got to verse 4 and said, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What comfort must that have brought to them to know, oh, God hears me. He knows he knows my, my lot. He hears my sufferings. 
He sees. And oh, he's the Lord of hosts. He's God Almighty. Who can thwart his arm? (laughs) Who could stand up against him? He will act on my behalf. He will make things right. I don't have to play God. I don't have to take vengeance. I don't have to grow bitter. I don't have to betray my Lord to take things into my own hands. The Lord Almighty has heard my cries and he will act in holy justice because he is a holy God. Listen, I I think there's probably all manner of contexts for us today to apply this, to be comforted by God's eternal justice. Are Are you being oppressed today in the workplace because of your faith? Are you being overlooked for a raise? Are, 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 are you being marginalized and, and ostracized and, and ridiculed? Because no, transgenderism is a sin. Same-sex marriage is a sin. Abortion is murderous sin. Have you been abused in your past? It's Father's Day. And I know not everybody here necessarily has happy memories of their father. Please don't project your experience with your father on the character and nature of your father in heaven. He loves you with an unfailing love. He is always at work for your good in all things. He is zealous for you to know his pleasure. But maybe some of you have been abused. Maybe you're experiencing that. Now, have you suffered unjustly? I pray that whatever your situation, it's made right today. Whether that's getting the right people involved or that's going through the legal system, I I pray that your situation can be righted, but I can't guarantee it. But you know what I can guarantee is that one day, I I can guarantee you this, that God hears your cries. He knows what you are up against. He sees what is happening And the day is fast approaching when when he will bring true and eternal justice. I I love the call to worship this morning. This picture of this transcendent God in Psalm 8 
the, the, the universe is the work of his fingertips. So, transcend. That's why I think of transcendence. And then we get to verse 4 and we realize, oh, but he's mindful of man. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. It's more than being mindful. The very next words out of his mouth are more that he cares. He doesn't just know what you're going through. He cares for you in the midst of it. Transcendence and intimacy. And we see, we see that here in the comfort that is given through this attack, if you will, by James on the unbelieving risk. So be comforted. Whatever is going on today, know. Know that one day all will be made right. Second, though James is not writing to us, he is writing for us to comfort us and to guard us, in particular to guard us from envy. Like the psalmist who humbly confessed, my feet had almost stumbled and, and my feet had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. I hate to break it to you folks. That's you and I. <laughs> That's you and I. We all have moments. We all have moments, if we're honest, where we wonder, is my faith in vain? Look, look, look at people around me. And I can say that because, listen, worldly treasures and values possess a powerful pull on our hearts, don't they? The treasures, the exaltations, the luxuries of this life. And they're not sinful in and of themselves. Remember, let's not misunderstand James. They, they possess a powerful pull on our hearts. And this graphic and sobering passage, you know what it is? It's a glorious guardrail from the Lord to, in the words of the psalmist, keep us from spiritually stumbling. How kind of God, knowing how tempting for the poor believers in the first century to think, is my faith in vain? Am I missing something? <laughs> Maybe I should forget about this whole family of faith thing and get out there and get to work and start building my riches. How merciful of God for this passage is, as it can seem like unbelievers in our lives. They, they, they've got life by the tail. Life is good. Life is without a care. Leisure and luxury seem to satisfy. And our temptation is to be like the psalmist and want to be like them. but we can't. We're not guided by the things of this world, are we? We're guided by truth. And the truth that James reminds us in this passage is that the unbelieving rich in this world are far from God. They are far from God in this life, and they will be completely separated from him except to receive unrelenting divine punishment, not for a season, but for an eternity. 
as the psalmist said. This is what James wants to do. The psalmist said, wow, I wonder if I should throw my lot in with them. And then he says, but I went to the house of the Lord. When I, when I tried to understand this, it was a wearisome task to me. In other words, this was a real fight for the psalmist. But I went to the house of the Lord, and I discerned what? Their end. That's what James is doing for us here. He's saying, listen, believers, scattered believers, listen, sovereign grace, church, listen, believers scattered across the Tucson community, before you go jumping in, discern their end. Let me tell you their end. Let me tell you about the misery that is waiting for them. Let me tell you that they may seem fat and, and, and happy now, but, but they are headed to the slaughterhouse. James guards us by graphically reminding us of their ultimate destiny. Now listen, I want to be very clear about one thing. That there is only one reason our destiny, if you're a Christian, there's only one reason why your destiny is different than those in verse one. You know that, right? And actually we can't, we can't help but be reminded of what that difference is when we read verse 6 where he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I said earlier, he is talking about the believer there. But we know. We can't read that without thinking about Jesus who though he was righteous in every way, the righteous capital O one. He did not resist his oppressors, but he gave his very life for the very ones who oppressed him. Our crucified and risen Savior is the only thing that stands between us and the unfathomable misery of the day of judgment. <clears throat> the only reason why heaven is yours instead of hell for eternity is because you belong to Christ. We stand on his riches. We stand on the richness of his righteousness provided for us in a perfect life. We stand on the riches of his death that brings the forgiveness of sins. His righteousness imputed to us, our sin imputed to him, the great exchange. That's the only difference between you and I and the lost, wealthy unbeliever out there. <laughs> the only reason why I'm going to heaven and another person is going to hell is because of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who did not resist, who did not call a host of angels down and say, take me down from this cross and strike everybody here. But carried in fullness the plan of infinite wisdom that leads to the salvation of sinners like you and I, so that instead of weeping and howling because of the misery that will be coming to us on the day of judgment, we only know grace. We only know mercy. We only know 
divine love. Not for a moment, not for a season, not just for a lifetime, but forever. And if you want to have a conversation about true riches and true treasures, there it is. And the world can't give you that. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're searching, you're searching for meaning and you're searching for purpose, you're searching for a cause, we, 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 all, wanna, we all wanna know that we're part of something. It can't be found out there. It can only be found in the righteous one who did not, who will not resist you when you come humbly from your heart saying, Lord, have mercy on me because my sin is great, but I believe Jesus is a greater Savior. It's called faith. It's called faith. And Romans 10 says, the one who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart and humbly comes before the Lord, he will save. And you know what the great thing is? You get saved and you realize, ha, it wasn't even me. <laughs> the, came, the Holy Spirit did that. So guess what? God always gets the game ball <laughs> because I can't take an ounce of glory for what the real difference is, the only difference between me and the person out there. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you don't know Jesus this morning, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter how poor or wealthy you are. If you don't know Jesus this morning, weep and howl over lunch today because there is a misery, an eternal misery that is coming to you. Your flesh will be eaten like fire. The wrath of God is real, and it's unfathomable, and it's coming. It is coming. The Lord the Lord will not tarry one moment beyond his foreordained day to set things right as he sends his son to return and his kingdom is established forever. And every man who is born once to die and be judged will stand before a holy God. And you will either have yourself and your personal resume, or you will have nothing but Jesus. And Jesus is enough. Listen, how do we apply this? Well, I made application really easy this week. Come back next week. <laughs> the eternal perspective of our passage today is the grounds of the patience in suffering James calls us to next week. Verse seven begins this way. Be patient, therefore. In other words, be patient because of what I just told you about the unbelieving rich. Be patient, be patient. Don't waver, don't stumble. 
Don't be tempted to throw in your lot with the rich and famous. No, be patient until the coming of the Lord. So, so if you want application, part two of today's sermon is next week. Be here. For those of you, I know some of you are here from out of state and you are traveling, so I would submit to you, you have two choices. You can either extend your vacation for another week or you can go home and then fly back Saturday night for part two, okay? And you know who I'm talking to, right? Here's where I want, here's where I want to end. I want to tell you how Psalm 73 ends. This is the one who said, I, I was tempted to throw in my lot when I saw the rich. Then he says, no, but then I discern their end. And here's what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. The psalmist believed being near to God, knowing God, spending eternity with God was far better than anything anyone around him had. I have a simple question for each one of us. Do you? Do you? Do you believe what the psalmist believes? Do you? This week the Lord has searched my own soul with these two words. Do you? And in answering the question, it's important to know that the answer is not found in our words. It's found in your life. The do you is found in your life. It's found in your generosity toward others with God has given you instead of stockpiling it. It's found in in the gratitude for what you have, contentment versus being envious for the world around you. It's found in the godliness of your conduct as you go about your business and daily dealings. Do you believe that being near to God, knowing God, spending eternity with God is far better than anything this life could provide? Do you? Do you? Do you? I believe you do. And I pray it will be evident to all this week for your joy, perhaps for the salvation of sinners, but above all, for the glory of the one you will spend eternity adoring in the greatest treasures and riches that you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask ourselves, do I believe that Christ is the treasure of all treasures? Lord, we do. But as your word says, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. 
And I pray as the preaching of the word is over, that the singing of your word continues the work of your spirit in each one. Jesus.